want to invite you to have a seat. If you're not aware, it is Father's Day. And if you're a father here, I want you to hear it from me. I'm, I'm thankful for you. Uh, especially if you're my own father, I'm thankful for you. And I'm, I'm glad to be worshiping with you this morning. As we celebrate fathers, we're going to dismiss uh, those who made them fathers. And that is uh, Hubtown Kids Blue Station and also Gray Station. As the, uh, the exodus ensues, or the chaos ensues, let me just tell you what our, our kids are going to be learning about today. They're going to be learning the answer to this question, or not the answer to the question, a statement, and that is, God is creator. God is creator. This is brought from Genesis 1-1, uh, chiefly, but it's, and we're, we're taught this uh, great principle throughout the scriptures from the beginning to the end. God is creator. He's the sustainer of everyone and everything. It's been really a joy as we've entered into this new series with our kids to hear them come back to me. Immediately after service, they come and find me and they, uh, in broken English and gibberish, they uh, declare to me what they've learned. I'm, I'm curious to see how Elena will pronounce uh, the word creator, but I'm sure she'll give it a good shot. I want to invite you to turn with me and your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. We're just taking the next couple verses in the book of Hebrews. If, uh, the, if you've been with us since the beginning, I, I hope that you're uh, enjoying this study. Uh, but to, together this morning, we'll be opening up to Hebrews 11, particularly verse 13. And that is found in the black hardback Bible in front of you. So if you didn't bring one, you're welcome to use that. Uh, it's found on page 1195. 1195. And so if you would turn there with me. And as you do, let me just remind you of some things. The Bible refers to Christians as many things, many things. And just for fun, let's, let's list off a few of them. The first is sheep. The Bible calls us sheep. And why does it refer to us as sheep? Well, because we are a sheep who need a shepherd. We need to be shepherded. There's another reference that the Bible makes to us, and that is saints. Saints, why does the scriptures, why do they refer to us as saints? Because we have been made holy by God himself. He's made us holy. Scriptures refer to us as members. Because together we comprise the body of Jesus Christ. But this morning we're going to be looking at this idea that the scriptures call us pilgrims. The scriptures refer to us as pilgrims. Why? Because this is not our home. This world is not our home. You look at the life of Abraham here in Hebrews chapter 11, 13 to 16. We'll zoom in this morning particularly. And we see in Father Abraham a life of faith that led him to be a pilgrim. And so with me, would you read these few verses? The scriptures say, starting in verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Again, let's just pause. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we want to regularly demonstrate our dependence on you. There's no amount of intelligence this morning that would enable us to understand or be helped by what we've just read. It's only by the power of your spirit working these truths into our hearts as we receive eyes of faith to understand and to see. Father, would you help us today through this text to become pilgrims? Father, where we've become weary of sojourning in a foreign land, would you give us the strength to continue? Father, this morning, where we've been tempted to become like the residents of this land, would you correct us? In your mercy, would you show us where we've erred, where we've strayed? And by the power of your spirit, shepherding our hearts, would you draw us in closer to you? Father, for the one this morning that is considering giving their life to Jesus, turning from their sins and receiving mercy, would you help them to count the cost? That they'll not add to their life these Christian principles, but if they come to Christ, today they'll come out of that old land and they'll begin a journey towards the heavenly land, the better land. God, would your entire church this morning count the cost? We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. Amen. There's a main idea that I see coming to the the surface this morning from this text, and I want it to be on the screen here. And the main idea is this, by faith, Christians are to live as pilgrims. By faith, Christians are to live as pilgrims. This is a heavy and shocking statement. We're not to live as if we're residents of this world, but the life of faith that we live believing what God has promised causes us to come out of a place that at one point was familiar and comfortable to us, and it calls us to journey to a new place of which we have never seen before. The Appalachia National Scenic Trail website, this is straight from that website, it says this, it's the longest hiking only footpath in the entire world. The Appalachia Trail measures roughly 2,190 miles in length. The trail travels through 14 states along the crests and valleys of the Appalachia Mountain Range and its southern terminus at Springer Mountain, Georgia, or from its uh, southern terminus at Springer Mountain, Georgia, to the northern terminus at someplace in Maine. I can't pronounce that word. Chuck, you'll instruct me later. It says here that more than 3 million people visit the trail every single year, and over 3,000 people attempt 
to through hike the entire footpath in a single year. I don't know what that percentage is, but out of 3 million, only 3,000 make the attempt to travel almost 2,200 miles. People from across the globe are drawn to the Appalachia Trail for, ver- for a variety of reasons, it says, such as re- reconnecting with nature, escaping from the stress of life, and meeting new people or deepening old friendships. If you were to take on the task of traveling the Appalachia Trail and completing it in one year, it would take, from what I understand, you can tell I don't do much hiking, but it would take somewhere around five to seven months. That's if you stuck with it. That's the average completion time. Most of these people are traveling 30 miles roundabout a day. Some of them less, some of them more. As they travel on the trail, almost everything they need to complete this hike in that year time is going to be carried on their back. Everything that they need to eat, or eat with at least, consumables they'll pick up along the trail, but they'll even sleep on the trail, completing every single step along the way. Now, for some of you, that gives you a little bit of anxiety. But if I were to say to us this morning, hey, each of us, beginning tomorrow, will begin our trek of 2,200 miles across the Appalachia Trail. Some of you feel like that great warning that Jesus gave, woe to you who are with child. Others of you wondering if your wheelchair or your cart will make it along the way. Some of you thinking, I don't know if everything that I could need or would need in a year's time or seven months time could be taken along with me, but I'd be willing to give it a shot. Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. But if each of us were to begin that hike tomorrow morning, I think that we would have a mixed response. And yet one that we would all have in common is that we were not prepared. You see, it takes months, weeks, Tons of research, tons of preparation to enter into this journey, to this sort of pilgrimage. Well, this morning, I want you to consider the fact that the pilgrimage that the scriptures command us to be on, the sojourning that we're supposed to be doing is not that dissimilar from an extremely long hike on the Appalachia Trail. And... Just as we would want to be prepared, and there are some things that we could do to help us be effective pilgrims or hikers, or effective hikers, the same as it would be, there's some preparation we could do to be effective pilgrims, I should say. And so let's look at this text this morning with eyes of faith, wanting to understand how it is that we could be better pilgrims. Let's look at the life of Abraham. Starting there in verse 13, it says, oddly enough, that Instead of accomplishing something by faith, as it has in regular cadence before verse 13, it starts off here in 13 by saying, these all died in faith. Look at verse 13 sort of as the score. When Abraham found himself at the end of his life, this great man of faith, this man who the scriptures say we're all sons of because he is the father of faith, And all of us who have faith in Christ also after him, consider him our father. When we consider our father Abraham's life, what was the score at the end? Well, there's a couple 
havings there in verse 13. The first one says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. When we think of the life of faith that Abraham lived before us here through this window in Hebrews 11, we see that not everything that God promised Abraham was received by Abraham in this life. God had promised Abraham that he would possess the land of Canaan. He also promised him that his innumerable descendants would occupy it. And yet when Abraham died, he had only one son of the promise and one piece of land where he had buried his sweet wife. One cave. One tombstone. And one son, as it were. At the end of his life, this life of faith, Abraham had not received everything that God had promised him. Kind of seems like he got the bad end of a deal here. That's not what Abraham believed. You see, Abraham did not have these things in hand when he passed. But what he did have was the ability to see them, it says, as you continue reading. And not just to see them, but to greet them from afar. Abraham's ability to see them and to greet them, it was not affected by distance or geography, seeing them from a great distance across a, a mountain vale or some desert. It wasn't a geographical sort of a distance, it was a temporal distance. Abraham, by faith, was able to look through time and say, I've seen the promises of God. I've seen them by faith. I've greeted them by faith. And this greeting that Abraham has is one of great hospitality. He was hospitable towards this promise of God that he was able to see through time by faith. Jesus references this very act. In John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59 Jesus is speaking there, and he, he says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He saw it and gave it a great big hug. And so the Jews responded to him and said, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There's so many things that we could unpack in this John 8 passage, this teaching of Jesus publicly. But we'll just suffice it to say that Abraham saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises that God had given to him. And not only did he see it through eyes of faith, but he embraced it. Jesus says, Abraham saw me and he was glad. He saw him, and he was glad. So he had not received, but he had seen, and he had greeted. But what else? Well, it says, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here it's referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all three of them, Sarah included, acknowledging or confessing, testifying that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You say, well, when in the world did Abraham ever say anything about being a sojourner or an exile? Well, that's easy. 
That was an easy question I asked myself, and I'll answer it. It makes me feel smart. Genesis 23, verses 4, 5, and 6, Abraham says, I am a sojourner, and I'm a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying, burying your dead. Abraham confesses to the Hittites there, in his need to bury his wife, I am a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. I own no property. I have no place to bury my dead. Would you help me in my need? Jacob does the same thing, but he does it in Egypt to Pharaoh. In Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, he says, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my life of my fathers in the land of their sojourning. Jacob confesses the same thing. Jacob acknowledges himself to Pharaoh that he also is a sojourner. He's a stranger. He's a pilgrim. What does it mean to be a stranger here? Well, how does it differ from exiles? First, the stranger really is the perspective uh, of those that are in the land already. Those who are residents, they, the residents look to the life of a stranger and they say, you're strange. You're not from around these parts. The way that you talk, the way that you act, it's, it's not typical, and you don't really fit in here. But what about the word exile? Well, exile has the word ex in there, right? Which means to, to come out of, to be out of. And so here Abraham in this strange land is not in his own land. Two different perspectives, but either way you look at it, it's saying of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob that they are in a strange place. If you put those two words together, it's the idea of a sojourning stranger, a traveling stranger, a pilgrim. When we think of the word pilgrim, which uh, several translations in the English language use that word pilgrim. When we think of the word pilgrim, we might be think, tempted to think of uh, those who travel to the Holy Land to see some sort of a saint or a shrine. And maybe you're thinking medieval times, those were pilgrimages, and that's not what is being said of Abraham. It's saying that Abraham came out of his homeland and is now traveling through a strange land. Have you ever heard that phrase, you're not from around here, are you? Some of you speaking different languages as a first language gathering with us here this morning are thinking you hear it all the time. Well, Abraham was a man that also heard that. You're not from around here, are you? The way that you talk, the way that you think, the way that you dress is very, very different. And Abraham wasn't just a sort of stranger or, or, or exile that as quickly as possible assimilated himself into the culture that he was around. All the time of his life, he never, ever assimilated into the culture of where God had him sojourning. The same is true of Jacob. We saw this last week. They continued to live in tents. Many cities around them. Many dwelling places quite different than Abraham. What he was 
used to, but he never laid down roots. He never assimilated. He never adopted the culture. He never conformed to the status of those around him. I want you to think of that word, though, acknowledged. Think of that word acknowledge. It's really an interesting word. Uh, it means to, uh, to give assent to, to say, yes, that's true. I believe that that's true. But the Greek word that's underneath of that word acknowledge is really even more interesting because it's a compilation of two words. The first one being same, translated same, and the second one as same, which is to say this. It's a lot of words all jammed into one word. It's to say this that their walk matched their talk. The things that they said, the things that they verbally acknowledged, both to Pharaoh and to the Hittites and to us today by extension of this passage, it also matched their life. It was the same. Their words were the same as their lives. Their words acknowledged, agreed with their lives, and their life agreed with their words. They were in unison together. That's such a fantastic testimony there of Abraham and of Jacob. And it's the same sort of testimony that the Apostle Paul calls us to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. Now, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll dive into this passage a little bit deeper. But I want to read it this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. If you want to turn there just a few pages away. Here we see Paul calling uh, Christians, you and I this morning, to recognize that we are a peculiar people, we, we are a special chosen people, we are exiles, and because we're exiles, we're to live a certain way. Because of who we are and who we say we are, we're to act a certain way, and those two things are to acknowledge one another. They're to be the same thing. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, the scripture says this, but you, Christian, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In this passage here, the, the apostle Paul is reminding the church of their identity. It sounds a lot. You could say all of these things of Abraham thus far. Abraham, you are a chosen race. There you were by yourself. We've covered this in weeks gone by. You were all by yourself. You were a pagan in a foreign land, and God chose you, and he determined to make of you, Abraham, a holy nation. He determined to make of you one man, a holy people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which is exactly what God did to Abraham. He said, I want you to declare my excellencies in a foreign land. I want you to come out of this darkness, the Ur of Chaldees, into the brightness of my presence in a land that I will show you. It's true of us as well, obviously, and it's true of Abraham. But because he is a chosen father in a foreign land to raise up a holy people unto God, there's some things that are true of him. 
and some things that are true of us as well as we parallel Abraham's life. Look at verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, as foreigners and pilgrims, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Because they are a unique group of people, Abraham's family, us as well, the church, we are to act in a unique sort of way. We're not to act as those around us here, he says, as the Gentiles act. But among them, you're to act in an honorable way. We're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's very peculiar as strangers when we live in a way that is at odds with the cultural norm. Bear in mind, as time goes on in your lifetime, you will become more and more peculiar as you do not give in to the passions of the flesh, but instead continue to act as a sojourner in an exile, a person from a totally different world, with a different sort of culture and even language. At any rate, we look at these this first verse, these first few sentences, and this is what we come away with. The score at the end of Abraham's life is that he has not yet received the promises even to the point of death, and yet he still believed God would keep those promises, and he proved his faith or he demonstrated his faith in God's word by living as an exile, living as a stranger in a foreign land. His faith, Abraham's, his faith talk matched his faith walk. Now, this passage also speaks of several lands. Let's look at verse 14. Several lands. There's three in view here. The first one, for people who speak thus, like Abraham, calling themselves strangers and exiles, sojourners and pilgrims, it says they make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They're seeking a homeland. See, Abraham was not just satisfied in the land in which he was sojourning. He was seeking a homeland, one that was promised. Beyond the physical promise of Canaan land, he had a promise of something far greater. And that's what he was seeking. I love that word homeland. It's really an interesting word. Uh, it's the word patris. And you can, you can hear it. it. It sounds like pater or father. And so the land that he's seeking, what is it? It's a homeland. It's a, the fatherland or the motherland. That word means, speaks of one's homeland where people speak your language and they think like you and they act like you and they talk like you. And what's important to them is important to you. Abraham is experiencing a desire for a homeland not like he's ever been a part of. And he was seeking that fatherland. Seeking here has more to do with the heart and less to do with the eyes or the feet. It speaks of longing for his homeland, longing for a place that he's never been. Maybe you hear the words of the song that I'm about to read for you and not sing. Maybe they're echoing through your mind without even a reference to them. What I'm thinking of goes like this. I'm kind of homesick for a country 
to which I've never been before, no sad goodbyes will there be spoken, for time won't matter anymore. Beulah land, I'm longing for you, and someday on thee I'll stand. There my home shall be eternal. Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Abraham longed for a country of which he had never seen before. And he knew that in this land, it would be eternal. It would be otherworldly. It would be incredibly different. He wanted to go to that new homeland. That's not the only land that's mentioned here. This land that Abraham is sojourning towards or pilgriming towards. What's the other lands mentioned? Well, look at verse 15. It says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. So there's a contrast here this morning. There's the land that Abraham is referring to as his new homeland, his true homeland. And then there's the homeland that he actually came out of. The old Abraham, before he was, in a sense, born again. He's called out of that original land. In some sense, he had forgotten his old land. He had forgotten the land of the Ur of Chaldees. It wasn't his anymore. He didn't think like them anymore. He didn't act like them anymore. And in many ways, they were no longer his people. He had a new fatherland. A fatherland that he was journeying towards. A land that he had been born into. He was longing for the land that he had actually been born in. He was abandoning. He's traveling there to that new land. But there's a third land as well. The land that he was originally born in. The land that he was promised and pilgriming towards. But there's the land now. The third land that's mentioned. And it's referred to. It's the land that he's actually in. It's the bridge between the two as it were. You see he's left the original land. He's. Heading to the new land, but now he's in the current land. It's referenced there in verse 16 by inference. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You see, Abraham had been promised a physical land, and he was in that land. And his descendants did occupy, and in many ways still occupy, that land. That wasn't enough for Abraham. He was looking for more than a physical one, the one that he was sojourning in. When he died, he was looking for a heavenly one, a better country. What do we know about this land that he's in? He doesn't believe it to be as good as the one that he is heading towards. It's very similar for the life of a Christian. When we come to faith in Christ, we've been called out of darkness into marvelous light, as we read in Peter. We come out of that darkness, we come to life in Christ, and yet at that same time, we're still living in the in-between. The original place that we were in, we were unable to do anything other than just to sin and to disobey God, living in utter darkness. And then when he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we were able to see that we were in sin against God. And as we repent and turn from our sin to God in that moment, we are able to now not sin. 
Now, we are still plagued with it as we sojourn and as we pilgrim on, but we're not in the same state that we were originally. Each of us having some level of freedom from sin will one day experience total freedom from sin. That's the land that we're longing for. We've received part of the promise here now. As we continue to pilgrim, we, like Abraham, are saying, we, this is good, but we need something better. There was more promised to us, and by faith, we see it and embrace it. He's saying here that he's looking for a land that is literally out of this world. A far better world than this is what we'll need, what's needed to satisfy Abraham. And David has a similar desire. Someone who also considered him a pilgrim, considered himself a pilgrim like his father Abraham. And he says in Psalm chapter 27, verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after. You say, David, what one thing do you need? What could you possibly want? You're the king of Israel. In the golden days of Israel, what can you possibly want that you don't already have and David says yes you're right I'm a I'm a sojourner in this land I'm a pilgrim in this land even though I'm a king I'm I'm still a traveler and as a traveler even though I'm a king there's still one thing that I want that I've asked God for and I've gotten it in part today but I want it in fullness I want it to never end I want it for all of eternity I want a better country a better city He says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's saying a very similar thing to that of Abraham. And I wonder if he's saying a similar thing to you this morning. As you consider this idea that we're all pilgrims, traveling from one place to the next, waiting for that promised destination, realizing that we, like Abraham, are exiles. I want to ask you a similar question that I asked about the Appalachia Trail. Are you ready to start the trek? Are you ready? Have you made preparations? The reality is, if if we're honest, many of us this morning, before we were reminded providentially through scripture, we had forgotten that we were pilgrims. If you're honest with me this morning, and before I ask you to, I'll be honest, I have forgotten that I am a pilgrim. That this is not my home. This is not my final destination. And maybe along with me, you'll admit that you're ready to learn a little bit more about what it entails to be living as an exile. And so just pastorally i've thrown together a a few things that i see through this text that kind of together form what i'm calling a a sojourner's guide to living as an exile so if you're taking notes this morning i want to just invite you to write down a few thoughts we'll explore them through this text using it as a springboard and applying it to our own lives these few points comprise what i'm calling the sojourner's guide to living as an exile. Number one, the first tip that we can gather from this text is to identify as a pilgrim. 
to identify as a pilgrim. Look at verse 13. It says, they, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. Abraham not only thought of himself as a pilgrim, but he referred to himself as a pilgrim. And that's really, really helpful. That's really helpful. Maybe for you, it would be helpful if you identified as a Christian pilgrim on your social media accounts. Maybe it would be helpful for you to identify as a Christian by, or as a pilgrim by attending services on Sunday morning or, or doing many other things that are very intricately and uniquely attributed to Christians or exiles in the land. Abraham, right off the bat, speaking with the foreigner, says, I am a foreigner myself. I'm a stranger in your land. This is not my country. I'm traveling to another country, and you need to know that. Some of you would have more success yourself if you would think of yourself as a pilgrim and publicly identify as a pilgrim. That's a simple one, but it's so important. Again, we forget Many of us uh, who are married wear wedding rings, and why do we do so? Well, we want to remind ourselves and our wives, husbands, want us to be reminded that we have a wife. And furthermore, it's not just for ourselves, but it's for those around us. We want other people to know we have a wife. Maybe that's a great place to start, simply as identifying as a pilgrim publicly. It's a good step to a guide. You say, well, I am afraid I'll look a little bit different. Well, sojourners do look different. Just the other day, I was driving down the road, and I happened to notice two people walking down the road. And immediately, as soon as I saw them, I knew, I knew what they'd been doing for the last little bit. They had been on the Appalachia Trail. How did I know? Well, they look like foreigners. And they act like exiles. Some of you are afraid if you identify as a pilgrim. If you begin to wear the, the dress or speak the language, carry the backpack that you'll be identified. And, and honestly, that is so much of what made Abraham successful. He wasn't afraid to identify as a pilgrim. And that's simply point one. Point two, in this guide to living as an exile is keep your eyes out front. Keep your eyes out front. Look at verse 15. Who was Abraham, or excuse me, what was Abraham focused on? Was he focused on what was behind him? No. Was he focused on what was immediately in front of him? No. Abraham kept his eyes focused on the end goal. And that protected his affections. You see, oftentimes the things that we are regularly around, regularly viewing and imbibing on, it affects our uh, affections. For someone like Abraham, we can see that he kept his focus on the end goal. And it helped him to be a successful pilgrim. Jesus, kind of speaking to this idea in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, he says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks and looking back, or after looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's this idea that somebody's plowing the rows there in the field, 
hoping to make a straight line, and they've spent so much of that last 200 yards looking behind them. The point is, how effective will you be as a farmer or a plowman if that's how you plow the field, always looking back? Well, you'll never make it to your destination. Whichever engine is pulling you, whether it be some sort of creature or a tractor, whatever it is, it won't be very effective. You won't be pulling a straight line. And Jesus is saying, you're not fit to be in the kingdom of God and you'll never make it. It's so similar when it comes to the life of faith as pilgrims. When we focus on what's behind or immediately right before us, we often will get tripped up. Walking forward is a challenge when you're looking back. Even better, we should be focusing way out in front. So eyes out front. But here's another tip that doesn't just help us on the Appalachia Trail, but as spiritual pilgrims, we are to, number three, keep moving. Keep moving. For illustration and maybe to be a little bit funny, what do you call a stick that comes back when you throw it? A boomerang. Well, what do you call a boomerang that doesn't come back when you throw it? A stick. Well, what do you call a pilgrim that's not pilgriming? He's a resident. He's not truly a pilgrim. If he's set up shop, laid down roots. Again, the only property that Abraham owned was his wife's burial plot. But by contrast, let's look at the life of Lot. We've not spent much time considering Lot in the last few weeks, but he's an integral part of Abraham's story. As these two are sojourning there in the land of Canaan, what begins to take place? Well, Abraham is continuing to live in tents. Abraham is continuing to sojourn, but we read in the book of Genesis that at some point, Lot determines to sort of pitch his tent or set up his tent in a way that is close to Sodom, in a way that he could maybe even see Sodom or it's moving towards Sodom. Yeah, he's still living in a tent, but slowly and surely he's making his way down to this established city, this city that is pagan as Ur of Chaldees and maybe even greater. We notice what happens soon in Lot's life is that he's not just living in a tent in a way that he is able to see Sodom, but he at one point there at the end of the story that Lot is a part of, he's living in Sodom. And in fact, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's impossible to see where the city of Sodom ends and Lot and his family begin. They've been sewn in one to the other. You see, Lot stopped moving. Abraham never stopped moving. He never stopped pilgriming, and Lot set up shop. There's a temptation, friends, Christians, there's a temptation to settle down. There's a temptation to lose momentum. The scriptures warn us and say, don't be weary in doing good. Because if we continue the race, if we continue the work that we're doing, we'll reap if we don't faint. You see, so, some of you have come far down the row there in the field and you've gotten tired. And you think, well, what, what do I do? It'd be easier just to turn around and go back and just maybe abandon this work and, and call it a day. 
than it would be to continue working. And that's exactly what Lot did. He stopped moving forward. As you find yourself on the Appalachia Trail tomorrow, many of us will give up just a few short minutes in. We'll be ready to stop. The temptation to settle down in the Christian life and to stop the pilgriming is real. It's sincere. And the tendency for all of us is to settle down. And maybe you're here this morning and you're being reminded that you're a pilgrim, Christian. And you are able to recognize and admit with me that you have settled down, at least in some way, form or fashion. Well, what are we to do this morning? To pick up our bag, to tie on our shoes, and to begin again this work of moving. And where we've begun to move our way towards the city of Sodom... As Lot did, so it's time to pull up the tent stakes, to pack that bag, and begin to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. And number four this morning in this guide to pilgriming is to trust the map. And really when I say trust the map, what I really want to say is don't trust your gut. Trust the map. Don't trust your gut. Look at verse 14. It says here, they made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. Christian, is it possible this morning that you've trusted your gut and you believe that what you're actually following and what you're actually seeking after is the homeland that God has promised to you, but then in reality, it's not clear to you, but it is to everybody else that really what you're seeking is what you've already found here in this life. And you say, I don't think that's true. My gut tells me that I'm doing the pilgrim life. And yet, the scriptures warn us and say, do not trust your gut. Do not trust your heart. What do you mean? Well, the scriptures teach us that the heart is deceitful. Of all things, and it's desperately wicked, who can understand it? Who can know it? You say, well, I think I'm going in the right direction. But the truth is, if you don't follow the map, And furthermore, if you don't read the map in community, there's a really good chance that you've deceived yourself. I've been honest with you a few times today in a way that is quite embarrassing, and I'll do it again. How many times have I been tricked by myself? How many times have I even known that I was going to trick myself into thinking that this is my motive, this is the reason, Josh, you're still a pilgrim, you're still on the path, you're, you're not settling down, you're not making yourself a resident, there's a good reason for why you're doing this or while, why you're doing that, and the, the reality is I've just deceived myself. Maybe you're with me this morning, you could say, hey, I, I've been called to be a pilgrim and There's many things in my life, there's many activities in my life that though on their face are not sinful, the reality is it's not consistent with a true pilgrim. It's not consistent with somebody who believes that this world as it is will end. And that there's a better city, a better country that's been prepared. If that's you here this morning, there's... It's a great time to walk in community and to stop trusting your gut. Stop allowing yourself to trick yourself and to trust the map, which is the word of God. Fifth, I think this is probably the most pointed for me. 
pack lightly. Pack lightly. Again, if we were to jump on that Appalachia Trail, we were to begin our journey this morning, or preparing for tomorrow morning, I should say, maybe we were to say, hey, let's gather around the church uh, in the parking lot there at maybe 6 o'clock. We want to kind of look over everybody's bags, make sure we have what we need. Some of us would probably have a little bit of a lighter bag, simply because we don't have much to bring on the journey. And so just by the nature of what you have, you would pack light. And other of us, a little more blessed, would potentially be inclined to bring more than we should. It's easy to accumulate weight. It's very easy to accumulate weight. So much time for the through hikers will be spent on shaving even a half of an ounce out of a bag. Why? So as not to weigh oneself down. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we'll get to it in just a few weeks. It, it commands us to lay aside every weight. I'm so tempted to preach that passage this morning and instead of the one I'm in because that's such a convicting passage and the Lord has encouraged me and convicted me through it, but I want to say this. There is a difference between that which weighs you down this morning and that which is a besetting sin. There's things in this life that are not sinful, and yet they are still weighting you down. And if we truly are to think ourselves as pilgrims, as sojourners, as through hikers, as backpackers, we will consider our own backpack and ask, where can we shave weight? The scriptures challenge each of us not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. So many of us think in this life that the treasures that we accumulate, we will hopefully be able to take with us along the journey and potentially even towards the city that is our destination. And the reality is there's nothing wrong with setting up for yourselves treasures, but just not here on this life. Because the things that we accumulate, and I'm speaking of materialism, the things that we accumulate in this life, they do in fact bog us down. Jesus is warning us and saying, don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth. It will only bog you down. Furthermore, it won't last. It will be destroyed. Instead of that, a wiser strategy would be to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We've referenced him many times, but Jim Elliott is quoted as saying, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Doesn't that fit this here? And this man, Jim Elliott, gave up everything to become a missionary in a foreign land. He even gave up his life. Maybe you know this, but they had the opportunity to actually put down their attacker, their attackers. And the reality is they laid up their lives as treasures not here on this life, but in the next they wouldn't be weighed down with the American dream or even the dream of a long and happy life, dying of an old age. They laid it all up. They laid it all down. Maybe you're wondering this morning if you're packing light enough. Well, I'm not going to give you a list of, of questions that you could ask yourself, but I do want you to ask that question. If you feel a little pressure this morning, if you, if you feel a little prick, maybe it's the Spirit of God saying, hey, I think you should check your, your pack. 
And if that's true, I would encourage you to check your pack with a brother and sister in Christ. Maybe in your life group, maybe in your D group, maybe just in your own home, asking your spouse to to look at what you spend your time on, look at what you've been spending your money on, asking together for you to consider, are you packing light enough? Is there still weight that you could slim or, or trim off? There's a passage that, it might seem a bit odd, but I think it'd be really helpful for you if you prayerfully read through with a brother or sister in Christ. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 14 to 19. And I won't say much about it, but it's so wonderful. Here, Ab- uh, not Abraham, David, who considers himself a sojourner, he considers his people to be sojourners, and they themselves do as well. They attribute all the wealth that they have, all the things that God has given to them as gifts from God. And so that's a healthy balance to just throwing everything out. But they also say, God, you've given us everything. We're sojourners in the land. And now of the things that you've provided for us, because you are our daily bread, we are now giving back to you out of the abundance of what you've given us. And David says of that, he says, God, you're testing our hearts. And we want you to have pleasure in our hearts. And so he says, God, test our hearts and see if we truly are giving to you an offering that's joyful. Are we being free and open-handed with our sacrifice for you? He says, I think we are. He says, I think we're living as sojourners. But I I want you to test our hearts. And he says, I, furthermore, I want you to keep our hearts. He's saying, I want you to keep our hearts from materialism. I want you to keep our hearts, the, your, your people's hearts, I want you to keep it from love of things. And I want you to direct our hearts towards you, which is the, you're the, you're the builder, you're the, you're the founder of that heavenly city. And so prayerfully, I want to challenge you, prayerfully read that passage together, 1 Chronicles 29, 14 to 19. time we're in an issue i would give you many many other together we could give we could add to this uh, pilgrim guide uh, many other entries but time is an issue we we've got lunch to 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 go eat today we've got to go celebrate dad and make that phone call and so we'll we'll uh we'll not spend too much more time but i do just want to list off a few if you're able to take notes i don't have these on the board for you but another tip would be don't just talk about sojourning do it when it comes to hiking, it's very fashionable to wear the hiking sort of clothing, isn't it? Some of you are, have your, your boots on, sort of hiked up cross leg. You're, you're putting those down and sliding them onto the pew because the hiking boots that, you're, that you've spent a lot of money on that you're wearing this morning don't have any mud on them, which, which then tells the rest of us that you uh, do more talking and, and not enough actual hiking. That's a simple point, but I think it helps us. Don't just talk about sojourning. Do it. Another point that you could add there, use your time wisely. There's so much time in a day and only so much time in a day. And so it's best to hike when the sun is shining, is it not? Here's another one. Be courteous to the residents. Be courteous to the residents. So many people in this life who call themselves Christians, they walk through with terrible attitudes. And they're not courteous to the residents that view this world as their home. We who are journeying towards a city, instead of feeling more pious and 
high-minded than those who are around us, the, the residents, would we not look on them with humble pity? So be courteous to the residents. And here's another one. Expect discrimination. Expect discrimination. I won't unpack that, but here's another one. Encourage your companions. No doubt as a pilgrim, as you look around this morning, you'll recognize that you're not sojourning alone. And many times along the path, the person next to you will have a blister, or maybe they've not had a good meal that day. They've become weary. Their pack has become heavy. What are we to do? Well, we're to come alongside of our companions, and we're to encourage them. How about this? Leave the place cleaner than you found it. There's an idea that prevails among Christians that this world's not our home, and so we should just trash it. Well, that's a very foreign principle in the Old and New Testament. We're to seek as the people of God to make the city that we dwell in a better city than when we found it. Now, our hearts can, we have to be careful, our hearts can become affectionate towards the city that we are building. And yet, at the same time, for fear of that, let's not leave the place trashed. But here's another one. Invite others to join you on the journey. If you truly are a pilgrim, if you truly are a sojourner, consider who can you invite to join you on the journey? Who can you invite to, to count the cost to abandon the material goods, to, to thin it all down to just a light backpack and to journey with you towards that celestial city that's so precious. I love the story. Many of you would think I would have made a mistake if I get through this sermon without referencing The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read this book, I want to invite you to, to, uh, to enjoy this delectable morsel. If you, How many of you just... But, well, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you don't have a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't read it, don't raise your hand. But if you don't have a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress, raise your hand. A couple of you are brave enough to admit it. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. This copy is going to be right here. That's an extra copy that I have. It's a fantastic book. It was written in the 17th century, and it is a story of a dream that a man has as he leaves the city of destruction and begins to head toward that celestial city. And many of the things that I've encouraged you from the word of God this morning, he does naturally. Many of these lessons, him learning himself, from lightening the pack, keeping his eyes in front of him and encouraging his companions that are along with him. Before we close this morning, I want to challenge the fathers this morning specifically. I want to challenge the fathers specifically. At the end of Jacob's life, he says, the days of my years, he declares to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years old, or 30, 130 years. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father, fathers, in the days of their sojourning. It's interesting to me as I read that, that Jacob was following in the footsteps of Isaac. And he was following in the footsteps of Abraham, and Abraham even of his father in some sense, as it relates to sojourning. But Jacob here is saying, he's referencing his father because he's saying, I am a sojourner like my father. David says the same thing in the prayer in Chronicles that I referenced and encouraged you to meditate on. He says the same thing, we're all sojourners like our fathers were before us. I want you to think about this, fathers. Abraham taught Isaac and Jacob by example 
how to be a sojourner. And I want you to just reflect. What sort of lessons have you demonstrated to your children concerning the pilgrimage that you're on today? What sort of lessons are you teaching? And you say, well, not very much. That's the sad part. I I don't really teach enough lessons. And, And the reality is, whether you verbalize those lessons, whether you've created some sort of curriculum or not, the lessons that speak the loudest are the examples that we set. The lessons that speak the loudest are the examples that we set. And so my question for you is, what sort of example are you setting? When it comes to the pilgrimage that God has called us onto, what sort of example, what sort of precedent are you setting for your children? Are you like Abraham? Are you, are you saying, I believe that what he has said is true? That nothing in this life is worth giving up the next? I'll travel light. I'll encourage those on the path around me. Or are you more like Lot? Well, the reality is that there's grace. Where we've failed, where we've turned to the side, where we've had bad examples, there's grace for us this morning. Consider yourself a pilgrim, fathers. We need fathers here in this church and in this city who say that the next city, the, the heavenly city that we're pilgriming towards, that's the one that I want more than anything in this life. Verse 16 says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Think about this as we close. God says, I'm not ashamed to be called Abraham's God because he believes me and I'm preparing a city for him. The lesser always prefers to be associated with the greater. And the greater almost always hates to be associated with the lesser. Think about that. You can illustrate it simply by Thanksgiving dinner. How many of you remember the day that you graduated from the kids' table to the big boy table? All of us love to be associated with God. And conversely, you'd think that maybe God really wouldn't love to be associated with you. And yet God calls himself And Exodus 3 says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not ashamed to be associated with us. Furthermore, notice that he is not preparing a place for us. The past tense there in verse 16 at the end says that he has prepared a place for us. Abraham believed that that was true. And even at the end of his life, he's saying, yeah, in this life I've not received it, but I know that he has prepared a place for us. Jesus said the same thing. I'll come again, and I'll bring you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I've already prepared, and I am preparing a place for you. Here's the main idea again. By faith, Christians are to live as pilgrims and not to be weary in well-doing. Every single thing that God has promised we will receive. Pilgrims, don't be weary. Let's pray. Father, we just stop again now at the end of our time and we say, thank you for being faithful to us. Thank you for your promises to us that 
your character and your promises, incredible as they are, combined together in our mind increases our faith and gives us the ability that we need to remain faithful in our journey as pilgrims. Father, help us to continue to not hate the world as much as to love your appearing and to love the city that you've promised us. Father, help us to be faithful pilgrims. Help us to live as sojourners, not to settle down, to keep moving, to pack lightly, to encourage those that are with us, and to invite others on the journey with us. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.